something is wrong, and it's time to stand up. You are listening to the John Age Show. Trust no one. Trust no one. Trust no one. You found it. You're here. You're headlong down the runaway train that is the Anomic Age. I'm your host, John H. Happy to be back with you once again today in the afternoon, not the wee hours of the a.m. for once. Um, So, please check it out, anomicage.com. If you've not already done so, you can, from there, go to all the social media links. Please like all the likes, subscribe to all the subscriptions. Free iPhone app, free Android app, free newsletter. All that's available and so much more, not to mention all the video and the audio from every single guest that we've ever had, as well as all the information breakdown segments, which, as you know by now, are just me. We got a great guest. We got Michael Volpe with us today, so please check it out and stick around for that. Michael has been a freelance investigative journalist since 2010, covering all kinds of stuff, Um, Most notably, if you've listened to his last episodes, I believe this is the the fifth, I believe. But most of his installments have to do with CPS. But today we're going in sort of another direction, um, intermingling the injustice system, if you will, with wrongful convictions. So, Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. How Mm -hmm. are you? Good. How's it going with you? (laughs) Good. Thank you so much for bearing with us and sticking around today. Well, as I said before, we're sort of taking a bit of a detour from CPS uh, for better or worse, but we're not going in a better direction. We're going into wrongful convictions and a whole lot of uh, a lot of similarities going on. Which one there, would you like are. to get into first with us today? Yeah, there are. And the first similarity is there's courts. But but the, the other similarity that I found is just as like, uh, CPS and lawyers and judges and family court have all sorts of techniques to screw you over. I think prosecutors and judges and juries uh, have all sorts of techniques, if you will, to screw you over as a defendant. Um, so a few things. Number one, this is an important topic for almost every one of your viewers because most of them are registered to vote or, or maybe one day and once you register to vote, you go into the jury pool, and at some point you may be a juror. And so, uh, though you probably will hate it and may even try to lie to get out of it, <laughs> it is an important duty. And if you are chosen, I've been on two juries, one criminal, one civil, um, you want to you wanna do it right. And uh, both convictions and acquittals often happen based on jurors misconstruing the strength of evidence. So, for instance, I've I've spoken, and then we'll get into the the particular case. I spoke sure. with a guy named Jeff Deskowick, who is exonerated, was wrongfully convicted for a brutal rape and murder for for sixteen, and he spent sixteen years in jail. So he's exonerated, no question, he was innocent. And one thing he told me was that eyewitness testimony is the the least reliable form of evidence. Now. I bet many people who come jurors hear an eyewitness say, you did it. Oh, well, that's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And in reality, oftentimes, someone who is an eyewitness will not uh, properly uh, identify the perpetrator for a variety of reasons, not the least of which that it's a traumatizing and intense experience. And so the things you think you remember, you don't actually remember so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, you should not treat eyewitness testimony as strong evidence. And if all you have is eyewitness testimony, you should scrutinize that. You should be very skeptical uh, because, as Jeff said, that is the weakest form of evidence. So let's get into each of the individual cases. And I think the first one involves our current FBI director. His name is Chris Ray. Uh, so this is now... 20-some years old, when Chris Ray was still an up-and-coming U.S. attorney, he was doing a federal case, because that's what the U.S. attorneys do, involving a guy named Robert Ethan Miller. And Miller was convicted of hatching a plot 
to kill his ex-girlfriend uh, and I think some other charges. And it got, got about 50 years. And I don't remember exactly how it got to the 50 years. But um, he was convicted on the strength of two people's testimony, Troy Plant and a guy named Sagay Hinson. And Before um, you go ahead, I just want to give everybody a heads up where they can find this. So I know they, they can better support you and follow your work on this one. Mm-hmm. It's at com. This particular article and all my work now is at com. And this I've pinned to the top. So most likely, unless I decide to unpin it, whenever you go there, you can find it. But that's behind a paywall for only $5.99. I, I, I'm going to run through it. You'll, you can actually see all of the evidence in its original form on that site. And so what's the um, headline on this one? I'm sorry? What's the headline on this one so they can find it easier? It's, uh, did Chris, I think it's, did Chris Ray put an innocent man in jail? But it should be right at the top with a big picture of Chris Ray from the FBI website. Gotcha. Uh, so this is important for a number of reasons. But if Chris Ray was involved in a wrongful conviction, that's something everyone needs to know because we don't want a dirty prosecutor heading the FBI. Uh, may, maybe the reason the FBI's tactics are so dirty is because... They're in line with some of the taxes he's used his entire career. And so uh, two, two people, Troy Plant and Sagai Hinson, testified against uh, Miller. Miller was in jail, whatever he was in jail for. I believe he did that crime. But keep in mind, he's been in jail a very long time. So whatever crime he did commit shouldn't have continued to be in jail for this long. And um, they testified that he uh, recruited them to hatch a plot to kill his ex-girlfriend because she was going to testify against him in whatever crime he was being uh, in jail for. Both of them have since, uh, in multiple affidavits, uh, said retracted their testimony. The problem, of course, is the, the, the prosecutors are great. So this guy, Troy Plant, career criminal. It's a guy, Henson, not a career criminal, but he, he's not a choir boy either. Mm-hmm. But... What they said is, well, of course they retracted their statements. These are career criminals. You can't trust them. Well, you could trust them to put them in jail, but when they retract their statements, you can't trust them. Um, however, uh, one other thing that Plant said was uh, that that Ray coerced him, and so did Hinson. That Ray that that Ray coerced him. That he threatened him. That you're going to go to jail for a very long time unless you play ball with us, which is very common. Of prosecutors, they love to do that. They love to threaten you and coerce you in a testimony. And of course, you won't—you as the juror won't necessarily know that. Here's what you should know: If someone is testifying, and during that testimony, they say something like, "Well, I'm here as part of a plea deal," mm-hmm. and that means that had they not testified, they would have done X number of years in jail. Now they do Y, and Y is a lot less than X. That's a bribe. Exactly. You know, I, it's not only now different, it's actually better than somebody just offers $50,000 cash. And sometimes they give them cash too, by the way. The FBI loves to do that uh, for living expenses. Uh, Henry Hill, you remember the guy from Goodfellas? He was getting money from the FBI along with his freedom and, and a new identity, but they gave him money. Uh, and this doesn't seem to affect jurors all that often. It would affect me. I'm a lot more cynical. Um <laughs> Now, there's a third guy involved in this story. His name is Elaine Vera. Vera did not testify. He did provide an affidavit after the fact. And he said he was desperate to testify. He reached out to the U.S. Attorney's Office, to Miller's attorney, and no one would respond to him. And he said he was in on this plot. It was not a plot to kill anyone. They were doing a minor drug deal. That's it. No big deal. That's both what Plant and Hinson said as well. So what you have is three people after the fact now spinning a completely different story. There is one little problem. Sagai Hinson died in 2016. His affidavit is dated 2017. Cannot explain that because he's dead. I don't know. But you can go to my website and you have to pay. It looks real. He certainly is telling someone's story because he's talking about how he had a son and the FBI told him if he didn't testify, they'd make sure he wouldn't see his son. 
Uh, and there was a lot of very specific details that he was providing. So I don't know who wrote the affidavit. Maybe Sagai Henson wrote it from the dead. Maybe he miswrote the date. Maybe someone changed the date after the fact. In fact, it was originally signed 2010, and then someone crossed out 2010 and put in 2017. It might be that Miller thought that an affidavit from 2010 would not do, so he crossed it out and put in 2017, um, which would not change the affidavit itself. One other thing, I'm the only one who noticed that. Neither the, neither that? the defense... <laughs> Nor the prosecution ever pointed out, hey, this affidavit from 2017, the guy's dead in 2016. So that's how careful everybody is. All right? Nobody noticed that the guy is dead. But even if you take out Hinson's, uh, and I did uh, speak briefly with Plant. I didn't speak to him, but it was by email through JPay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in jail, go figure, when I talked to him in about 2020. And, uh, and he once again said um, that... Uh, that um, that that Miller didn't do it. That that he was pressured. That this was just a, a small drug deal. That's all they were hatching. Uh, that he shouldn't have done twenty some years uh, or however long he was doing. And he's going to do a long time in jail. Um, and also, uh, he didn't know who Chris Ray. He did He knew who Chris Ray was. He didn't know that he was an FBI the FBI director. So, um, you know, so he was saying that Ray. Uh, was manipulating him and coercing him, and he wasn't doing it because he thought that would stand out and people would notice. He was doing it, presumably, because that's what happened. Um, but what people should know is these deals are dirty. That Prosecutors make these deals all the time. I, I'd say the most notorious deal ever made was with Sammy the Bull Gravano, who testified against John Gotti. Mm-hmm. He admitted to 19 murders. He did five years after the five years, he moved to Arizona and created a, an ecstasy ring and then did a, a lot of other time. Uh, this is what happens when you make deals with, with people like this. Uh, you know, was it worth it to get John Gotti? I, I would say the prosecutors would say it's worth it. But you let off a you know, serial killer. And, and one of the people that Gravano killed was his brother-in-law, his wife's brother. He didn't care. Um, well, maybe he cared, but he killed him anyway. Um so uh, they make deals with people like this all the time. You make deals with criminals. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, and so um, the thing people should understand to me, if somebody is testifying as part of a plea deal, that's a bribe. You should just dismiss their testimony out of hand. If the only evidence against the defendant is comes by way of a plea deal or multiple, I don't care if 10 people are testifying. If every single one of them has got a plea deal. To me, that's bribery. Those are not. Uh, credible witnesses. You should just dismiss it out of hand. And if there's no other evidence, at least don't convict if that's the only evidence. If there's physical evidence that uh, that validates what the person testifying to is saying, that's one thing. But if you've got like four people up on the stand, they all point the finger at one guy, but every single one of them has got a plea deal, you should dismiss that out of hand. So, okay, let's go to the, the second article. This is an interesting case. Randall Rahr. He was convicted in 2006. Possession of child pornography, he told me that was uh, nothing more than a, like a nudist colony magazine. Uh, but let's put that to the side because possession of child pornography would not still be in jail. Mm-hmm. He's also convicted of child molestation. But th- this is where it gets dicey. Uh, he was convicted when a tw- then 21-year-old in 2006, Heather Witt, testified against him. However, she testified about events that supposedly happened when she was five years old. So, uh, and that's it. That's obviously the only evidence. Uh, 16 years after the fact, John, how, how comfortable are you with someone dying in prison from a 21-year-old testifying about events that happened to her when she was five? Yeah, that sounds insane. I mean, I, I don't want to testify about anything happened 25 years ago because I know I'm not going to remember what the devil was going on. I mean, that's... That's that's exactly right. Uh, one of the things that he sent me from prison, again, we were communicating through JPay, uh, which is where almost all prison communication happens, uh, so uh, was some therapist notes. I think there were therapist notes from like months after these incidents happened. And it does, it's almost certain that someone sexually violated Heather when she was five or six years old. It's just not entirely clear that it was Randall Rahr. At the time, she pointed the finger as a five- or six-year-old at a guy named Jimmy who was her babysitter. She 
in some graphic detail, described to this therapist, maybe it was a psychologist, what happened, that he touched me, where he touched her. Uh, 16 years later, she was saying it was Randall, who was her neighbor. Uh, and the interesting thing that I cannot confirm, Randall did work for a newspaper. He was investigating a string of serial killings set 1977-78 near Detroit. Those definitely happened. They're notorious. Uh, he believes uh, that he was targeted because he and he had done some FOIA requests. I can confirm that he had done some FOIA requests in March of 2006, I think, and by May, or maybe it was 2005. By May, uh, cops were knocking down his door. That could be a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences in cases like this. Um, it would be quite dramatic if all of this happened because. He was getting too close to figuring out who a notorious serial killer was, who he believes is law enforcement. I don't remember the reasons, but he, in terms of like, just in terms of general description, he believes that the person who who was approaching, and I think it was four women, uh, would be law enforcement based on on the things that that he found out about about the murders. Uh, but it would be quite dramatic if he was targeted, uh, and and he believes that they. Were that the cops were suggestive uh, was a term he used to Heather, and that they essentially guided her and said things like, hey, it's probably Randall, right? And then got her to believe that whatever happened to her was done by Randall. That's what he believes. Um, but that would be uh, quite scandalous. And also, uh, these serial killings, once he was put in jail, all of a sudden... Detroit newspapers were putting up stories that suggested he was the serial killer. Wow. That I can't confirm because I found the stories. He hasn't been charged or convicted. So it does appear like a smear campaign was started against him. Uh, he had nothing to do with the serial killings, or if he did, you have not actually found any evidence because you put up these suggestive... And they could do that because they said, oh, he was convicted of this, and now he's a suspect in this. And so now you got these articles, and he was just a suspect. Sixteen years later, still no evidence he convict, committed the crimes, just a suspect. And uh, so he may may indeed be in jail simply because he was working with his newspaper on some news stories uh, about these serial killings. The serial killings definitely happened, and uh, I'll I'll keep looking into that. But regardless. We should never have a conviction based on a 21-year-old talking about things that happened when she was five or he ludicrous. That is the jury's fault. Nobody else's fault. The prosecutor's fault for even bringing the case. But you gotta, if prosecutors thought they could win the case, it's because they thought the jurors are pretty stupid. It's amazing that you could be up there, hear a 21-year-old describe events that happened when they were five and go, well, that's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. If that's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, pretty much <clears> anything <throat> is. Um, so this brings me to the second lesson. When I mean, I want to around... underscore these points for a minute because I don't want people to miss the just insanity here. So this man is in prison predicated on something that a 21-year-old said happened 20 years ago. I mean, I might be off on the years. I mean, am I 16, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's right there in the in the appeal, twenty one year old, it, and then they didn't use her name, uh, and then she described the events. I I do believe something happened because she went to therapy at roughly the same time. And again, um, she pin she accused someone else at the time. And what's even more scandalous is Randall told me those therapist notes weren't introduced at trial. That would have created reasonable doubt right there. They put those therapist notes in front of Heather and said, well, when you were six, you said it was Jimmy. How come it's Randall now? Right there. There's your reasonable doubt. That's all the defense needed to do. They didn't do it. He did not have a good. And, and here's another lesson. Well, it's not a lesson, but it's just it's the truth. Uh, OJ is the best example of this. Mm -hmm. The quality of your lawyer makes all the difference. Go look up O.J. Simpson. That's all you need to know. That guy got away with murder, literally, because he hired the very, very best because he could afford them. Most of the people in jail do not have the money for the very, very best. 
and as a result, they don't get proper representation. And so the, things like this don't get introduced, and then you get convictions where they shouldn't happen. And yeah, a 21-year-old testified the thing that happened when she was five, and they convicted him. Um, and the elephant in the room, like, i got to go back to this too, is this guy was working at a newspaper. He was investigating a string of serial killings. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm not saying guilty or innocent. I'm just saying that's pretty darn suspicious. I I guess he got off light. I guess I didn't Michael Hastings him into a tree, but it's like, hey, we're doing an an investigative series on this, but just so happens now you're getting charged for this, and then we're going to sort of uh, smoke and mirrors, pin this other uh, incident on you as well. I mean, come on. He, He wanted to figure out who the murderer was. Yeah. I don't know if the two are related, but I can tell you there are newspapers articles out there. If you do uh, like Randall Rar's Detroit serial killings, you'll find them. They then smeared him because he hasn't been charged, definitely not convicted of these. 16 years later, if he was a suspect, he didn't have much evidence. Yeah. Sitting in jail. So they smeared him and tried to make it look like he's a serial killer. All right. So the, the, third, the, the third case, I think, is... Uh, the double murder from 1995 with Kevin Towers. Is that right? Uh, let me see here. What's the headline on that one? Uh, don't remember. Oh, let me see. Not sure what the title yep, is. Yep, double murder. Uh, man convicted double murder, in man, of 1995. Double murder. Of, so before before I explain this, uh, the person who brought this to me is a woman named Lindy Morelli. She works, uh, she started something called Lighthouse in Scranton. It's a nonprofit. If you all are feeling generous, you definitely want to give her a few dollars. She does a lot of work in the prisons uh, with wrongfully convicted and and not wrongfully convicted. Uh, but she does great work. Uh, one of the best people I've ever met. Um, she started advocating for this guy, Kevin Tower. Kevin was convicted, I think it was 19, the murders were in 1995. He was convicted in 1996 of killing his two uncles. And uh, since that time, he has developed an airtight alibi. That's not enough. (laughs) The key witness against him has retracted her statement. That's not enough. Forensic evidence has shown that at the time of the murder, he's developed this airtight alibi. The time of the murder... He couldn't have done it because he was 50 miles away, and it's still not enough. They even have evidence that the prosecutors have withheld evidence, and it's still not enough. So he was convicted, um, and Heather, I think, is her name. I'm not going to remember her last name, but she was the key witness against him. She was like a friend of his who, I think, dabbled a little bit, and definitely in drugs, and I think she was a prostitute at times. Uh, she was a you know, seedy person. Um, and she testified that she was in his car and she looked in the back seat, and this is sometime shortly after the murder, and saw a bloody knife. And so that became key evidence. Oh, and the other thing is there was a letter that he wrote that should not have even been intercepted that was taken to be a confession, though it's ambiguous whether or not it's a confession. But here's the key. So the two uncles disappear on July 5th, 1995. Mm-hmm. They're found like July 20-something. But, you know, if you disappear on a date and you're found on a date, most likely you were killed shortly after you disappeared. It's yeah. not like you were wandering for three days and then you got killed. You know, so... Most likely, they got killed on July 5th. So he gets convicted in 1996-97, whenever it was. In 2003, they find a video store receipt from when he went to a video store 50 miles away at exactly the time that the murders would have happened, mm-hmm. proving that he was 50 miles away and it's not enough. So why is it not enough? So the prosecution then argues, well, yeah, probably the murders happened on July 5th. Well, we can't be certain. Could have been the 6th. Could have been the 7th. It could have been any time between July 5th and when when the bodies were found. 
And since he doesn't have an alibi for the entire two and a half weeks, our, our conviction should stand. So you should keep in mind, once you're convicted, it's basically role reversal. Now it's not guilty. Now you have to prove innocence beyond a reasonable mm-hmm. doubt effectively. You've got to do it the other way. So they could play this little trick. They could argue in court that the murder happened on July 5. You can come back six years later and say, well, then I'm innocent because I was at the video store 50 miles away. And they go, well, probably July 5, but maybe July 6. Where were you July 6? I don't know. Oh, well, then maybe that's when you killed him. I mean, did maybe they not July do 7? forensics on the bodies to determine an approximate time fact, of death or what? In fact, Lindy reached out to, I, I'm not going to remember his name, but he did many important autopsies, including John F. Kennedy. This guy is the premier, premier, premier guy. And he said, no, definitely July 5. Absolutely July 5. It's not enough. And then Heather comes back uh, and a few, a couple years ago said, yeah, you know what I said about Kevin? That's not true. The prosecutors showed up and they said, you're looking at a little time or a lot of time. You want to know how you do a little time? You tell us Kevin did it. If you want to do a lot of time, you're going to tell us nothing. And they, they, they coerced. And she was a teenager at the time or maybe 20, 21. She was young. She had already had a little bit of a criminal record, maybe even a lot of a criminal record. Um, it's easy to coerce people like that. And they coerced her. And, and she put this in an affidavit. None, none of what you heard. This is, this is all gone to appeals courts at different times. And every single time. The appeals court has upheld the conviction. So you want to know how hard it is? I, it's, I don't. It's mind-boggling. It's absolutely mind-boggling that he's still in jail. He's got an airtight alibi. The key witness against him is recanted. He basically have no evidence against this guy, and he's still sitting in jail. It's. I mean, it's. I hate to keep saying the same. It's like the same mafia tactics that we've all heard about from. The Sopranos or The Godfather, except in this case, it's the supposed uh, criminal justice system. Protect and, and serve and uh, legal mafia, it sounds like. The, one of the reasons this happens is because uh, it, it, it's our fault because uh, we as voters vote in the district attorneys. Sometimes they have different titles in different states. And we want district attorneys who are tough on crime. You want to be tough on crime. Well, you know, the ones who are tough on crime often cut corners and that's OK with you. And so these things happen and everybody's shocked. Well, the next time you vote for a district attorney, what, you know, do you even know who it is? Why are you voting for them? Do you care if they're ethical? Are you asking that question? Are you trying to vote in the most ethical district attorney? Is that something that anyone talks about? Or do you hear about convictions? Because the, the prosecutors in their offices are usually judged based on conviction rates, based on how many people they put in jail, based on the percentages of convictions to cases. And so if that's the case, what do you think they're going to do? Are they going to be ethical? Are they being judged on ethics? It doesn't sound like it. And look, this not in every uh, DA's office. And, and actually you see the, the DA's offices that that emphasize ethics have many more ethical uh, prosecutors and the ones who emphasize convictions have a lot more convictions. And so this is something to think about. Uh, You will, if you vote in the local elections, vote for district attorneys. And so that's a question you should be asking. Is this person ethical? Is that someone, has the media asked them? Has the media looked into their ethics? How many wrong, how many convictions have been overturned? from this particular prosecutor, from this DA's office? Is it one or two? Or is it 100? Because if it's closer to 100, then it doesn't sound like they're ethical. Uh, and so that these are the questions that voters need to ask. And you, as voters, need to demand ethical prosecutors and you need to vote out unethical prosecutors. The most notorious was uh, is in Brooklyn, Charles Hines. He's dead now. But... Um, I don't, it'll be hundreds when it's all said and done, wrongful convictions that will be overturned. And who knows how many wrongful convictions they'll have. And that'll lead us into the next case. But um, he kept getting reelected, reelected, reelected. And it's because the voters in Brooklyn didn't really care whether he was ethical. They wanted him to convict people. And so 
if you're shocked by this, better not find out that you don't care whether your process, whether you, your district attorney is ethical. You just want convictions because you're not that shocked then. Okay, let's go to the next case, and this is the celebrity prosecutor. All right. Right. Okay, so this next this next case, uh, I think this is right. This and this is, is on DailyCaller.com. If you folks that are uh, watching want to tune in and follow along with us. Okay, so this is a 2019 article from the Daily Call. It's called, This Celebrity Prosecutor Has a Perfect Record of Convictions and a History of Withholding Evidence. Uh, the, the celebrity prosecutor's name is Anna Siganikolazi. She has a show on ID called True Convictions. Very ironic, given her track record as a prosecutor. Uh, she's now got a, a few, a handful of cases that people are scrutinizing, and we're she was 35 and 0 when she took took cases to trial. 35 and 0, very very proud of that. It turns out she cheats a lot. That's how she got the 35 and 0. So the main case was a guy named John Juca. That was like her big claim to fame. Uh, he was called the Grid Kid Killer. Uh, he. Um, he was out at a bar, met a couple of girls. The girls were out with a guy. Uh, and uh, they eventually, they went one place, a second place. Eventually, they they went to, um, and let, let me get this right. They went to John's house and, and John's mom, and, and, and this is a lesson, kids. John's mom was out of town. John let the kids party. They probably did some illegal drugs, some illegal drinking because nobody was actually 21. Uh, none of that would land him in jail for as long as he is. And uh, Mark Fisher, uh, Mark Fisher eventually leaves the party. Uh, he is found dead a few blocks away. And he, he was killed by a guy named Anthony Russo. Now, we're going to start to notice patterns here. Anthony Russo, in an attempt to get a deal, testified against John Juca, and he claimed that John uh, had put him up to it, that he had given him the gun, that he had even hid the gun afterwards, that he was the mastermind. Uh, Nicolazzi got a couple of other people to testify as well, and one by one, all of these people started to recant, but it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Doreen Giuliano, who is John's mom, she uh, has been fierce in her attempts to get John out of jail. She had heard that one of the jurors was desperate to get on the jury, that he hadn't headed out for John, that he wanted to get John because he thought he was Jewish. He's not. But, so she goes undercover starts a relationship with this guy and secretly records him admitting to all of this, boasting about it, right? Brings it to court. And the judge says, I am very concerned that you use these illegal tactics and would not throw out the conviction. Then one by one. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah, not that a juror got on a jury and lied. And he knew John, I think uh, they had, they, they had mutual friends. He shouldn't have been on the jury. If he had told, it's called Wadire, if you remember from my cousin Vinny, they use that term, uh, that it, it, it's different in different scenarios. But if you're picked for a jury, they'll ask you a series of questions. Yeah. So, you know, so to, to see if if I want to choose you, but also, you know, like like if you were raped and the defendant's charged with rape, they're not going to pick you. Mm -hmm. All right. Like, like that, the judge would throw out. And so. This guy, if he was honest, would have said, well, actually, through friends of friends, I know John, and also I think he's Jewish, and I don't like Jews, so uh, I'd probably be biased. Well, I didn't yeah. say that. So he gets picked. They bring that to the judge. It gets thrown out. Then one by one, all of the witnesses step forward. And this, the witnesses' statements didn't make sense. Sometimes they said John gave him the gun. Sometimes they said he didn't. Sometimes they said Russo gave him the gun back. Sometimes they said didn't. None of that matters. And it's just mind-boggling. This is also obviously on the jury because you had a you had a, uh, a a compromised juror, if you will. That should so, all fall under reasonable uh, doubt. <laughs> Conflicting yeah, reason, stories, changing stories. That's and, reasonable and doubt, folks. 
Listen, folks, when you're on the jury, here's how you have to think about it. It's, I think, here's what most jurors do, and this is wrong, and it, it may sound like a distinction or a difference, but it's not. Most jurors, you know, a crime's committed, you have a defendant, and you listen to all the testimony, and you think, did he or she do it? No, that's wrong. What you should be thinking about is, did the prosecution meet its burden of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? What's a reasonable doubt? It's in your mind whether or not it's crossed that threshold. What is a reasonable doubt? Because it's impossible to take away all doubt. Don't try to figure out if someone did it. And in fact, and I will say this, I believe the jurors in the OJ trial, that's exactly what they did. See, if they were thinking, did he do it? Well, they would come back with a guilty verdict. Mm-hmm. It definitely seemed like he did it. But on the other hand, the defense created reasonable doubt. Uh, I believe the jury got it right. It wasn't the jury's fault that the prosecution fumbled it, that their star witness had to plead the fifth. That's not the jury's fault. There was reasonable doubt created. You shouldn't. So you shouldn't uh, go in and look and say, did he do it? Did she do it? Did the prosecution meet its burden. And I think if they had thought that, you know, you look at the evidence and one person is saying one thing, one person is saying another thing, their star witness got a deal. It doesn't seem like it's guilt beyond reasonable doubt. But uh, John's in jail. The latest is th- this is just outrageous. Nicolazzi, during her uh, investigation, interviewed a, a prison informant named John Ingram. And she recorded it. And during the interview, Ingram said, when I talked to Russo, he told me he didn't, that John Juca didn't do it. When I told, talked to Juca, he told me he didn't do it. Now, one thing you should know, it's no way that a guy by accident meets with like two parts of a, uh, of a criminal case because they would be kept away. So someone sent Ingram in to make sure he'd meet with both of them probably a prosecutor, probably Nicolazzi. Probably Nicolazzi wanted to see how strong her case was. So what did she do? She withheld that audio recording. When she put a witness list on, she misspelled Ingram's last name. Ingram's now dead. Uh, So he can't be called to the stand. One other thing, this withholding of evidence, it's called exculpatory. Exculpatory is evidence that helps the defense make their case. Mm -hmm. When you withhold it, it's called a Brady violation. That's for a for a landmark Supreme Court case called Brady versus Maryland, uh, the next time a U.S. Supreme Court uh, vacancy comes up, you should try to watch some of the hearings and see how often they ask about Brady versus Maryland. If it's more than zero, I'll be surprised. That's a U.S. Supreme Court case. Never hear about it. Um, I don't know if you remember a judge named Alex Kaczynski. I think that's his name. Uh, he no. was the mentor for... Uh, one of the justices, it's, um, I'm not, uh, Kavanaugh. He, mm-hmm. Kavanaugh clerked for him. Uh, so he's, I don't know if you say mentor, but Kavanaugh clerked for him early in his career. So you could say he was a mentor. So he's kind of a big deal. Now, he had some, some sexual uh, harassment stuff. He, they, they removed him from the bench for sexual harassment stuff. Kaczynski, in, a, in an opinion, said Brady violations are at an epidemic level. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. That's a pretty big deal when a judge says they're at an epidemic level because that means prosecutors are withholding evidence at an epidemic level. Mm-hmm. And um, you never – even Kavanaugh didn't get asked – You know, your, your former mentor said Brady violations are an epidemic. Do you agree with him? Hmm. No. You, you don't get – you know, he – Kaczynski is a big deal. He, he got pretty high up in the federal court. You never hear any senator ask that question, of course, because that's – because Brady violations don't – don't give you political advantage. If you're like, you know, I think Brady violations are really important. I really want to explore that with you, Your Honor. It doesn't really fit that jingle uh, narrative of we're tough on crime, but we have Brady violations, but we're tough on crime. I mean, it seems like this silly. Also, abortion creates political hay. Some other guns create political hay. Brady violations don't get you votes because, you know, people don't know what that is. They don't understand it. They're not going to vote for you because you care about Brady violations. That's why. See, I, I was on with another guy and I was like, you know, there's like 500 questions about abortion. How about how about we just have 
499. <laughs> and we just reserve one of those 500 for Brady and ask him. You know, wouldn't it be a good question here? I, I want to read you something that Judge Alex Kaczynski said. I want to see if you agree with it. All right. Uh, do you agree with Judge How often do you see Brady violations? Is this a big deal? What should be done about it? Do you disagree? That would be a good question. Yeah, not one. You'll, you know, we'll have another Supreme Court justice come up in a couple of years, probably in the next couple of years. And see, I, I've, I, since I've noticed this, I've been following. I don't remember one time. This is a U.S. Supreme Court case. That's what you know. That's what you do. Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Ask him Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. Uh, Heller. Heller. You hear Heller all the time. Everybody knows what Heller is. Uh, Citizens United. Everybody knows what Citizens United is. But Brady versus Maryland, which is cited a lot. Because there's a lot of, not a lot, but there are so, there's some to a lot of Brady violations. Certainly uh, a lot of allegations of Brady violations. Cited a lot. You never hear it asked. Uh, a lot of these senators are uh, lawyers by trade. So how come you don't ask them? Okay, so, uh, and, and, and one other thing. This thing with Ingram, mm-hmm. it it first popped up in 2018. Uh, his lawyer john john juca's lawyer is mark bedrow he he walks into the prosecutor's office and he's like steaming mad or, or maybe just threatening or just just his aura is threatening and he finds like a clerk or a secretary or someone he described the story he's like you know i know you've got stuff you better give me everything you have because i'm supposed to have it all and and you know the, the whoever he was talking to was all flustered and just drops a bunch of things in the box and she had this recording uh, it was on like a tape deck because back then it was on tape, right? Yeah. So 2018 was when he discovered it. We're into 2022, and they still haven't decided whether or not they should reverse the conviction based on this new evidence. Jeez. Four years. And, you know, and in the meantime, John just, you know, rots in jail. He was like 18 when he was put in jail. Now he's, you know, he's pushing 40. Um, and his mom is, you know, she's still still advocating and fighting for him. He had it reversed at one point, and then they kept him in jail while while that reversal was appealed again, and then that reversal was reversed, and so he's gotten close ones, but he uh, he still remains in jail. Uh, Nicolazzi, there's a couple of other cases where she's done some shady things, at least a couple. She was 35 and all. I'm wondering how many of those 35 were fair and how many times she cheated, and I mean- so. I, I gotta um, wonder also, would this be a different scenario if she didn't have her own TV show and and right. be a reasonably well, attractive young lady? I'll just say that. Right. I mean, now, I'm thinking if this is just some right. Uh, I don't she, know. she, yeah. Well, I'm wondering if she was not reasonably attractive if she still had her TV show. That's she a actually good point, quietly, as this case heated up. And when I say heated up, like the evidence started coming out that she was shady. Yeah, that's when she got her TV show. So she quietly changed careers as all of this stuff was happening. But they, they've kept around. I've, I've sent multiple emails to like the press people at ID, and they don't seem to care. And that's, that's on ID, Investigation Discovery. That's where Homicide Hunter is at, uh, Deadly Women, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They don't seem to care that this woman, you know, that, that it's a bogus resume. Yeah, if you cheat, you'll be 35 and all. She cheated. She put innocent people in jail. She withheld evidence. She coerced witnesses. Uh, she, she, you know, she did stuff in the, the summation or the closing argument that was shady. She did a lot of bad stuff and they don't care. And that's something, if you're watching it, contact ID, ask them, you know, aren't you following John Juca? It's G I U C A. Aren't you following this case? Why are you letting her have another season? How many seasons should she get before you pull the plug on that show? You don't seem to care that she's not a good prosecutor. She's a cheater. Okay. I mean, that's what's, I don't want to get you sidetracked, but that's what is always so disgusting from my perspective on this is it seems like, and, and I got to throw the jury culpable in here too. Like, as long as we don't upset the apple cart, everything's okay. Don't tell me, don't tell me about all these facts. We got this great narrative. That's the right. narrative. Just stick to this narrative. Hey, this guy's in prison for 20 years. Oh, well, <laughs> if we keep this I, narrative I, I, alive, well, nobody will break our. Our normalcy I, bias I, or our, our I, reality. I, I, I gotta ask, you know, when when your star witness gets a deal, when the witnesses are contradicting themselves, when you're not sure if who gave who the gun, 
where who gave who the gun afterwards when John's you know four blocks away from the actual murder why do you think how'd you come up to guilt beyond a reasonable doubt yeah that was on the jury and, and of course we had a tainted juror uh, and one other thing that I wanted to add about the jury I, I'm friends with a guy named Fletcher Long and he used to be a hotshot lawyer and uh, I don't know if you remember the the Vanderbilt football players there was a high-profile rape so he defended Brandenburg, who was the, the head of like the, the rape posse, if you will. Hmm. And one of the jurors just decided to not share that they had been the victim of a rape. And and he discovered it afterwards. You can look it up. They they had a conviction and had to get thrown out. And that was because Fletcher discovered that that the juror withheld that very, very important piece of information. So I know folks who would rather have their teeth pulled out with no Novocaine, then sit on a jury would wonder why anyone would ever want to be on a jury, let alone why to get on a jury. But you'd be surprised. You would really be surprised. Um, Some people are desperate to get on a jury for a variety of reasons, and juror misconduct is not unheard of. Uh, It happens, uh, probably not plenty. I'm not saying it happens in 100% of the cases. This isn't like a 1 in 10,000 thing. I think juror misconduct is quite plentiful. So, um, that's the next one. The next I mean, one I think it gives otherwise powerless people just that little, little finite bit of power for a minute, you know? <laughs> so. Right. Well, look, if, if you've been raped and you hear that, that this is a rape, you might want to be on that jury. Yeah. Uh, if it's a, look, if it's a high profile case, like any of the jurors on Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard have a book deal if they want it. So if it's a high profile case, there's a lot of reasons why somebody would want to be on the jury. I know some of the jurors wrote, books about the OJ trial. Um, So definitely if it's high profile, uh, sometimes people feel the need to find somebody guilty. Sometimes they feel the need to find somebody innocent. Uh, You know, R. Kelly is found innocent, even though there's a tape before he was found guilty. So, um, you know, it all depends. If it's celebrity, there's a lot of reasons, but there there are a lot of reasons. So don't think that there's no juror misconduct. There's some, not plenty, but some. Okay, so the next one is a guy named Robert Reynolds. Okay. This is once again this uh, this very troubling um, pattern that I've seen where people get deals and that's all that the prosecution has and uh, and then they get convictions. So Reynolds was convicted after three people were busted with drugs in their house. All three people said, well, our supplier is Robert Reynolds. There's no other evidence that Robert Reynolds did anything wrong except for a criminal history. And he was convicted. Nothing else, though. The testimony of three compromised people, and that's all it took. Very troubling. Uh, I don't, maybe he is guilty. Three people that testify against him. But, you know, he got convicted because three people who took deals said he did it. There was no other evidence, and that's troubling. Uh, that's a bribe, folks. That's, there's no other way to say it. I can't believe you would listen to the testimony of someone who said, well, I was going to do 20 years. Now I'm doing two years, but you should trust me. Robert Reynolds is my supplier. Um, and now he's sitting in jail for a very, very long time. The last one is a guy named Albert Drew, and uh, this is another topic, lineups. Lineups can be great. They can be very strong evidence. In this case, well, there are tainted lineups, and it's not uh, unheard of. In his case, uh, the perpetrator of the crime was described as having an afro. It was him and six other people in the lineup. He was the only one in an afro. Guess who the witnesses picked? <laughs> Come on, so, um, you know, and, it's, and that's it. That's the evidence. And, you know, they tainted the lineup. And look, again, so you, it's up to his lawyer to get that lineup thrown out. He had a bad lawyer as well. And, you know, ineffective counsel is very, very prevalent. Not everyone can afford Johnny Cochran. Not everyone can afford F. Lee Bailey. And those who can't get stuck with very bad lawyers and they don't do a good job. There is no way that that lineup should have been allowed into evidence, but it was. And now he's sitting in jail for a very, very long time. Completely tainted lineup. Maybe he did it. I'm not saying he didn't do it. Uh, the person did pick him out. But, you know, if the perpetrator had an afro and you've got six people or seven people, 
and one of them has an afro and the other ones don't, you know, it's not hard to figure out who they're going to pick. That's a bogus lineup. Um, you know, it's shocking that that stuff gets through and, and you get to the trial and, and this is allowed in. But it, but it was. Jeez. Man. It seems okay. like and it's the are, same old mafia tactics again. It's just over and over again. Yeah. And so that, that's the stuff people should think about and scrutinize the evidence. Uh, and, and as someone who's done two jury, been on two juries, uh, I know you want to get out of there. But it's okay to take your time. It, it It's even okay to be the one who plays devil. I, I tried to do that. We, we Both times we walked in and every juror had their mind made up, including me. And both times I was like, no, no, no let's, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Let's talk about this evidence. And, and it's okay to be the one who challenges the evidence. Like 12 angry men. You could be That's like 12 exactly, angry yeah. men. Challenge the evidence. Keep them in there. It's okay if you feel like you've come to a decision too quickly. It's okay to say, "Hold on, let's go through the evidence again." You know what? You're never going to see these people again. Let them talk to their wives about the annoying juror number six, or whatever number you are. All right, take your time, because uh, especially in criminal cases, the the result of what you're doing is it's very significant. You're either bringing justice to a victim or you are making sure that somebody who is wrongfully accused is not wrongfully convicted. Do not uh, do not rush it. Be skeptical of, of all evidence, both from the prosecution and defense. Don't be afraid to argue. Be open-minded. Oh, my God, that's the key. You know, it, like juries are, it's exactly like politics. You know, like once you choose a side, it's like you're a partisan. You know, it's it's like... You know, it's like someone stole something. If you decide it's the other side, it's okay to, to, to start on one side and go to another side. So challenge the evidence, scrutinize the evidence, go over the evidence, take your time. You get paid, not a lot. You are getting paid. Um, but the decision you're making is so critical. Take your time. Uh, and keep in mind, a lot of evidence seems strong and it's really not. And when you go through it multiple different ways, that's when you see it. Um, and that's it. And I think what you're saying is so crucial because kind of everything you've said today should set the stage for people to understand this. But once you get behind bars, it's darn near impossible to get that decision overturned, to get that uh, ship righted, if you will, because there's appeals, there's counter appeals, there's you sitting your butt in jail behind bars for however long it takes until that mess gets straightened out. Right. Yeah. No, it's a very long and difficult process. And. You know, they've counted up the number of exonerees, and it's a fraction of the number of people who are really wrongfully convicted. That's correct. Like, you as the jury, you are the defense. You are uh, the one line of defense between a wrongfully convicted person and a long time in jail. But you're also, you speak for the victim. And it's that balancing act. And uh, you have to, you, you have to make sure that the prosecution meets its burden. It's not about whether you think someone did it. That's not your standard. The standard is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. You get to decide what's a reasonable doubt. Every single person gets to decide what's a reasonable doubt. See, look, in the OJ trial, the lead detective had to plead the fifth. That's a, See, when people are upset about the OJ verdict, shouldn't shouldn't get upset with the jury. The lead detective pled the fifth. That's a big problem. Yeah. That could be enough. Look, that's enough. Reasonable doubt. All of the evidence that you see, you can say, well, it's tainted. I don't know if this guy uh, planted it. He had to plead the fifth. Why should I trust any of the evidence? That's how the jury thought. I'm pretty sure part of the reason is because O.J. was famous. So what? The the defense picked holes at the prosecution's case, and the jury decided there was reasonable doubt. And And I believe in that case they did the right thing. Anyone who has followed that case uh, sh- should agree with me that, that it's not the jury's fault. Um, and, and, and I think even in Michael Jackson's case as well, and he had, you know, and, bo- and by the way, both those cases, they had really, really good lawyers. Uh, you know, if, uh, if Robert Reynolds had Tom Mazzaro, he wouldn't be in jail right now. That was Michael Jackson's lawyer. Uh, he was a brilliant lawyer. Pick, pick, pick the case apart. And that's what, what defense lawyers should do. And when you go in there, you pick the case apart the same way. 
take your time. Uh, you're only going to do it once, maybe twice in your life. So what if you spend an extra four hours? It's not that big a deal. Um, but you want to make sure you get it right. Uh, and a, a lot of evidence seems like it's strong and it's not. So make sure it's strong and make sure you get it right. And that's it. And I know you mentioned this earlier in the show, but I kind of want to close and, and underscore these points because all of us are going to the voting box at some point in the game, you know, God mm -hmm. willing, or if you don't have a felony. But nevertheless, what are some ways when you're going to that voting box, you see all those names, hopefully you're doing your research before you even get there. But, you know, you mentioned some of these ways to say, hey, does this person have um, this, that, or the other violations that we could possibly look up and in my humble opinion, right. weed people straight out. I mean, that's that's my right. Well, look, I you should if you're looking at the DA, if there's an incumbent DA, uh, see how many wrongful convictions have been overturned. Um, that's one way that a lot of them have created conviction integrity units. So that's actually a unit within the DA's office that's trying to identify wrongful convictions. Mm -hmm. How strong is that unit? How many wrongful convictions has it found? Uh, how often do they talk about ethics? Well, what do you want from the DA? Um, see, if you're listening to this and you say it's too bad, but then you just want the guy who, who is talking about getting the criminals off the street and I'm tough on child molesters and this and that, uh, and that's what you want, then you're not going to get an ethical prosecutor because if they charge someone with child molestation, they're going to damn well convict them, even if they got to cheat to do it. So... That's uh, those are the things you got to consider. Look, it's a balancing act. You you want the guy to be tough on crime, but you don't want him to cheat, and you want to find someone who does both. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's difficult. Uh, they they can't cheat, uh, but if all they're doing is talking about being tough on crime, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. You think they're not going to cheat to get there? Of course they are. Yeah, if you're a hammer, uh, everything so looks like a nail. Talk so. about Right. You want him to talk about both. And look, you know, maybe you're you want him to be a Soros style prosecutor where you don't want him to be tough on crime. I don't know. Uh, you know, and there's that's not as out there as you think it is, because a lot of people think that that what prosecutors are doing is piling up charges for particularly for drug offenses and putting people in jail when they have a drug problem. That, that, that's what the primarily what these Soros style Prosecutors are thinking that uh, if they're right, uh, they, they often go way overboard. But if uh, if they're right, it, it's a lot of drug convictions that don't deserve the time that they're getting. And you're just putting addicts in jail. And that's what the Soros type prosecutors are thinking. But you how often does a person talk about ethics? Uh, do they sound sincere? Do they have a plan to mm -hmm. hold people accountable to be ethical? Look, if, if you get a chance to talk to them. Uh, you know, you can ask a question like, how are you going to make sure that every prosecutor in your office uh, conforms to Brady rules? I don't want prosecutors to withhold evidence. What are you going to do to make sure that prosecutors don't withhold mm -hmm. evidence? See how they answer that. Those are yeah. good questions. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being with us again today. What's the best place people can go to help you out, follow your work and so forth? MichaelVolpe.substack.com. Check me out right. there. Uh, and that's where the Chris Ray article and the other articles are as well. I get a whole series on Randall Rar. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting, including some articles where he answers questions. Uh, he's been put through a lot. So find me there, MichaelVolpe.substack.com. Perfect. Well, if you'll stick around for a second, I'll close things up and say goodbye to you all fair. All right. All right, folks, if you missed any of that, you can check it all out and so much more. All those previous interviews, which I say are very much well worth listening to, at anomicage.com. Share all those links once again. Friends, family, loved ones, and enemies. As I always say, you can't do everything, but you can do something. So please try to get out there, do your part, and make that difference. Until next time, I'll be seeing you sooner than later in the Anomic Age. Thank you for listening to The Anomic Age, a John Age project. For past shows, further info, and to comment, go to anomicage.com. That's A N O M I C A G E.com.
Till next time, thank you for listening to The Anomic Age. Thank <laughs> you.